Okay, wonderful. What great and glorious worship. What a way to get your, high, your heart ready to, uh, not just to hear the Word of God, but honestly to preach the Word of God. So I'm excited for our time. Why don't you pray one more time with me and we will begin. Father, we simply humble ourselves beneath your mighty hand. We know that it is your business to exalt those who humble themselves beneath your hand. And Lord, who are we that you should bring us to a place of privilege? Who are we that you should put your favor upon us and your sovereign grace so that you would be favorably disposed to us? We ask, God, that as we look at the Psalter, that you would remind us of the contrast between what you regard as righteous and blessed and wicked and profane. Father, we know that you are a God of holiness. And Lord, even though we lose sight of that in our own lives, even though we are easily moved from the path of righteousness, from that blessed life, may you remind us, Lord, of the truly happy estate of those who walk with you and those who commune with you in the light, even as you are in the light. So we ask your blessing now on our time. And we pray that you would allow for these weeks ahead of us, Lord, in the Psalter to have an evangelical force as the gospel is unleashed through the Psalter and that you would bring in a mighty harvest so that if anybody here falls into the dreadful category of the wicked, oh God, that you would bring them to a place of righteousness through your Son. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, uh, I am so uh, excited for what's going on here at our church. I'm so grateful for Rami being here and sharing with us. I just want to remind you that next week, uh, our brother Joseph Urban also will be here with us, and so we are going to have a heavily missions-minded uh, Lord's Day next week. So uh, come on out. That's going to be really glorious. Uh, and so I will not be preaching, and I thought, why is the Lord keeping me out of the pulpit so often? <laughs> you know, must really want me to rest. But he will be preaching to us next week, and so we are going to be doubly blessed not only to hear from Rami again, but then to hear from Joseph. So be ready for that. But today, our business is with Psalm 1, as you saw. And uh, once again, this is just on a, from a selfish uh, point of view. I've never preached the Psalms. In the, and you know, as much time as I have spent devotionally looking at this book, being enriched by this book, profiting from the, the Psalter, I've yet to ever exposit anything in the Psalter at least not regularly on, on Sundays. And so I am very, very excited to get to the Psalter because it has been really personally enriching to me. And I hope that you will as well be blessed. Now, as we begin to approach the Psalms, there are definitely some preliminary things that we need to uh, address. And I want to point out just a few of them uh, before we actually get to the text. First, I just want to point out the significance of Psalm 1. Also, talk about the divide between the righteous and the wicked. That's an important thing. And also, the issue of God's blessing. I wanted to uh, just quickly comment on that. And then, really, at the end of the, the, the psalm, uh, at the end of our uh, sermon every week, what I would like to do for us 
in the spirit of a redemptive historical hermeneutic, of course, and a Christocentric hermeneutic, I would like to have a practical section every week where we end uh, our exposition in the Psalter with a connection to Christ, uh, because it was Christ himself who told us in Luke chapter 24, verse 27 and verse 44, that the, that the whole uh, uh, scriptures about him, and he explained the things concerning himself out of the prophets, out of the law, out of the prophets, and out of the Psalms. And so, according to Christ, when we look at the Psalms, we, we, we have some connection coming back to us uh, concerning Christ. And so, I hope to do that practically for us every week. But first, just the subject of the first Psalm. Psalm 1 is what theologians call a Torah Psalm. It is a Psalm of the law of the Lord, and really it is sort of seminal or foundational for the future Torah psalms in the Psalter. So, for example, when Psalm 1 says in verse 2 that the delight of the blessed man is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. When the psalmist is appealing to the law of God, he is already setting forth the covenantal framework of the Psalter. This is expanded upon in Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19 is then a further exposition of Psalm 1 as there the psalmist declares that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But really, it's really setting everything up for Psalm 119. So if you've spent any time in Psalm 119, that you will know that the entire psalm, Psalm 119, is one massive exposition of the law of God. So if you don't really like hearing about the law, you're not going to like Psalm 119. Because in Psalm 119, the psalmist is declaring the perfections of the law. Uh, the, you know, uh, the, the psalmist says, you know, I have seen the limit of all perfection, but your law is exceedingly broad. And so for the psalmist, the law of God is sort of an, an endless and infinite. It has sort of a, it has sort of a timeless, timeless and a nomic sort of relevance for our lives and the perfections thereof are limitless. This also reminds us that the Psalms are relevant for our lives. As a Torah Psalm, we're going to hear about the law of God. And many uh, 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 you know, Christians, depending on what theological persuasion you're coming from, you would tend to think that, well, because you know, Romans says statements about we are not under law but under grace, that somehow the law is not relevant for you any longer. That's false. Uh, properly understood and within the, the proper covenantal structure of Scripture, uh, the law is still relevant for us, and we're going to find that out. This is what the Reformed theologians would call the third use of the law, that the law of God is still a sanctifying moral guide for our lives. And that's why you and I, if we want to be the blessed man, we too should understand what does it mean to meditate on the law of God day and night so that we will be productive in the kingdom. Psalm 1 also has a very evangelical thrust. Let me uh, read to you uh, from Calvin's opening of the Psalter. He says, the sum and the substance of the whole psalm here, Psalm 1, is that he says that they are blessed who apply their heart to pursue heavenly wisdom, whereas the profane despisers of God, although for a time they may reckon themselves happy, shall at length 
have a most miserable end. That brings us to my second subject, and that is that what the psalm does unashamedly, unapologetically, is that it brings up a great divide between the righteous and the wicked. I only mention this because, because you know, as 21st century Christians, we may find some of the, the language, the vocabulary of the Psalter challenging because the psalmist does not hold back uh, his opinion of this great divide that there in the eyes of God and the economy of God, you are either righteous or you are wicked. And that divide, which is a very basic one, wouldn't you agree, increasingly is being blurred. Uh, just an example, I mean, just uh, on the 4th of July, I was out doing some evangelism with Brother Chris Bess, and we were sitting there talking to an a evangelical Christian. One was a Methodist, and, you know, the Methodist young man turns and asks us, what about Mormons? What do you think about them? And, you know, uh, we gave some answer to that, of course. And he said, you know, because I've met a lot of Mormons that I believe have a relationship with the Father. What? So this is what you're learning in your church, is that Mormons who obviously are a restoration cult who deny the doctrine of the Trinity, biblically stated, who believe Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, who believe that God was a human being and that human beings will become gods and will populate their own planets one day and have celestial you know, children into infinity, that they know the Father? You see, we live in an age of pluralism today where distinctions that are hard and fast are not popular. We live in a pluralistic society where truth itself is no longer uh, uh, sort of a, like to use the language of the Apostle John, an issue of light and darkness, truth and error, the spirit of God or the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, in that way, we have to understand that the Psalms are very much politically incorrect. And, um, but it is good for us to understand this because it will, it will help us to have an a, a eternal perspective. Remember that in the Psalms, I'll give you a little sample of this. In the Psalms, God will shatter the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 3, verse 7. He will bring the evil of the wicked to an end. Psalm 7, verse 9. The wicked will go down into the grave. And that's in a pejorative sense in Psalm 12. The wicked are those who love violence and God hates. Think about that. When's the last time somebody went on Fox News and quoted Psalm 11? God hates the wicked who love violence. Uh, God hates wicked people for their deeds, Psalm 5. And of course, in Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff. They will not stand in the judgment and they will ultimately perish. The Psalms reminds us of the glorious blessedness of the righteous and the high privileged position that we have in Christ and that by His grace. Now, let me move on to another point. And this is a point that I hope to really encourage you with. And that is... The subject of the blessed man. Verse 1. How blessed is the man. I just want to state the obvious because maybe it's not so obvious. But brothers and sisters, there is a man who retains the blessing of God. Doesn't that interest you? That there is someone who can retain God's blessing and avoid God's judgment, of course. So how do we understand this idea of the blessed man? Who is the blessed man, and how does God bless the blessed man? I want to be blessed. 
I want to come under God's blessing, God's favor. And of course, the, the whole idea of being blessed by God in many, in many Christian circles has been perverted and distorted into a prosperity sort of thinking of what it means to be blessed merely circumstantially, externally, monetarily, materialistically. But that is not what it means. Uh, if you just think about what Scripture teaches, there's two aspects to this. There is what we could call the positional blessing of God, and then there is what we can call the practical blessing of God. Now, positionally speaking, you know what this blessing is, right? It is the blessing of salvation. Uh, it is the blessing of being united to God's Son. It's union with Christ. How do we know this? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Jesus Christ is the center point of blessing. Uh, These are the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. That's the positional. Uh, That's the forensic. That's the salvific blessing of God that puts us into communion with God. But then there's also the practical. And the practical, I think, is really what the psalmist is getting at here. He's talking about practical communion. So it's almost as if the positional deals with the union, but the practical with the communion. See, what this is telling us is that in order for, ha- for us to have a spiritual life that is vital, that is blessed, that is prosperous, h- how do you know that your Christianity is blessed? Well, we're going to get principles out of the Psalms to see that. But this is no different than what the New Testament uh, talks about in terms of Christians flourishing in Christ. I'll give you a simple passage on that. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he bears much fruit. There's the communion. There's the practical. For apart from me, there's the union. There is the, there's the, that's the positional. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's the need for union. There's the need for the positional blessing of God, but then there is also the evidence of the practical uh, blessing of God in our fruit-bearing. And therefore, the Psalms is going to teach us what it means to be blessed. Before time gets away with us, because I'll be honest with you, I had a really hard time sort of editing my notes because I was so excited to study the Psalms that, you know, I went way beyond what I usually do for a sermon And I thought, okay, in order not to keep the church here for an hour and a half, I better hurry up. We're going to look at some very simple points here in the Psalms with the metaphor that the Psalter gives us, the metaphor of walking, the metaphor of standing, and the metaphor of sitting. What we're given here is really, if you would, we are given a direction, a decision, and a disposition. That's really the structure or the outline. And so, when, in terms of this blessing, how does it begin? Notice the way it begins. So point number one today, the righteous do not walk with the wicked. That is stressing our direction as believers. And if you think about blessing, 
If people want to be happy, uh, some translations, if you look at some commentaries, for example, they will translate the, the, the Hebrew here, blessed, they will translate that as happy. And what's interesting about that is that people will pursue just about anything to be happy, right? They'll, they'll just try anything to be happy. They'll go anywhere. They'll do anything. They'll try any drug, any program, any lifestyle, any philosophy. Uh, they will go between any opinion. They will oscillate between any worldview in order to try to obtain happiness. They'll even try to oscillate between genders to be happy. But we know that those things don't lead to true happiness, Because in the Bible, happiness is not circumstantial. It is not based on the circumstances around you. It is based on truth. Happiness is based on reality. Happiness is based on a spiritual state that you are in, not a mind frame that you're in. And so therefore, for us to understand what it means to be truly happy, we may even be taken by surprise when we realize that what the psalmist has done as he begins to tell us how to have a happy life, a blessed life, notice how he begins. He begins with the negative. He begins by saying, what you don't do. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You see, because for the psalmist, in order for you to be truly happy, you have to obey God's law. Complete opposite of what the wicked will tell you. That in order to obtain happiness, you need to sort of be autonomous. Think autonomously. Think independently. Think for yourself. Do what thou wilt, and you will be happy. That is the complete opposite of the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview tells us to be happy is to obey. And therefore, we should not be surprised that the psalm begins with the law of God, a prohibition. Don't do this and you will be happy. As a matter of fact, the psalmist declares that as part of evidence that you have truly been regenerated is that you will love the law of God. You will delight in the law of God. He will write the law of God on your heart. Whereas before the law of God was a threat, it was a burden. And what does John tell us? Your commandments are not burdensome. Only someone who has had uh, the miracle of the new birth, the regeneration, the new creation, that you have been transformed by spirit-wrought union with Christ, only somebody like that can say something like that. I love the law of God. I love to obey In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says he thanks God that they became obedient from the heart. Obedience follows regeneration. But now, as we come to this, notice the nature of this first prohibition. The righteous do not walk with the wicked. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, the metaphor here for walking Uh, is really referring to a lifestyle choice. It's talking about the way that you are going to conduct your life. And he says that one thing that he does not do is he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, the word here, the Hebrew word for counsel is etse. And the Hebrew word means more something like plan 
or scheme. Because it's not just talking about, you know, don't receive advice from the wicked. It's much more than that. Uh, The Hebrew word actually entails a well-thought-out course of action that is rooted ultimately in lawlessness. This is later referred to as the way of the wicked. This is a plan that is built on an entire system or standards that are contrary to God's law. Now, Derek Kidner says that the law basically means direction or instruction, Torah, the word Torah. And so what the wicked are offering us in their counsel is something of a counter law to God's. They're giving us an optional instruction. They're giving us an optional direction. They're giving us another law. And that law is ultimately antichrist in nature. It is antithetical to life. It is antithetical to God's law. It is antithetical to Christ. It is man-centered. It is humanistic. To use Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it is to follow the course of this world, the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is the counsel of the wicked. And we need to ask ourselves that, don't we? What counsel do we listen to? Whose counsel are we subjected to? Do we follow in the schemes of the wicked? Who has our ear right now? What are we subjecting ourselves to? Uh, What types of entertainment do you subject your children to? Uh, All of these things become extremely important for knowing whether or not you actually fall under the category of giving heed to the counsel of the wicked, to actually going in the flow with the schemes and the plans that the wicked have devised. Ultimately, the wicked are such because they stand in total antithesis to God And this whole notion of the counsel of the wicked is idolatry because it is shirking God's standards and adopting your own, thinking that you are a law unto yourself. And God takes this personally. uh, God takes this personal. To take, you know, God takes offense at the transgression of his own law. It's his own law. The law of God reflects his own moral perfection. We should consider what the opening of this word here is, not just counsel, but the word here, wicked, uh, rasha in the Hebrew. I'm going to throw a lot of Hebrew words at you. Uh, Up to this point, I've thrown a lot of uh, Greek words. Now it's time for me to start trying to impress you with Hebrew. The Hebrew term, as has been pointed out, is broader than the word wicked. Uh, That's what's important here is that when we use the word wicked, in our minds, we must think of somebody really wicked, right? And so we immediately jump to a stereotype of what we have in our mind of a wicked person. But it is not that. Uh, in, the, in the world of the Psalms, it means somebody who is not in covenant with God, somebody who is outside of the covenant community because of their profane lifestyle. It's anybody that does not obey God's law. It's anybody who does not possess salvation, to be more specific, who does not follow God's law, who does not delight in God's law, that person is the wicked person. Um, In the Old Testament, the wicked are those who break God's law. Psalm 119, verse 53. They are those who live lives of immorality. Uh, This is in Jeremiah, chapter 14, verse 20. Uh, They persecute the righteous. Psalm 17, verse 13. They are those who deserve God's judgment here, now, and then in forever. 
in Psalm 139, verse 19. Let me, let me read um, Alan Ross. By the way, if you're looking for a good commentary on the Psalter, you will find no finer commentary, in my opinion, than the three volumes by Alan P. Ross on Psalms. This is what he says. He says, The ungodly may be capable of truly wicked acts, but they may also seem to be pleasant people. They may even be members of a congregation whose presence in the worship service is therefore hypocritical. They have no intention of obeying God's word, but are more comfortable associating with either adulterers or thieves and are themselves malicious slanders or other things. Some of these people may seem to be good to us, but as far as God is concerned, they are wicked because they have rejected their Creator and chosen to live in violation of God's laws and refuse His provision of salvation. Some, somebody may ask, is my dear old grandmother who bakes me cookies, is she wicked? Well, just try pressing your grandmother with the truths of the gospel and you will get your answer. It is not that what Scripture is teaching is utter depravity, right? It is not that the wicked sin as much as possible. That's not the case. But Scripture is teaching total depravity. And that is to say that regardless of what manifestations of depravity you may see, the truth that Scripture teaches is that every aspect of man's humanness is fallen and tainted by sin. That's the problem. Let's move on to the next one. Not just the direction, the counsel, the plans, the schemes, walking with the wicked, but also the next prohibition is this. The righteous do not stand with the wicked. Now, this moves us closer to the point of decision. You see, in other words, this is someone who not only has opened up their ears to the counsel of the wicked, not only are they considering the schemes of the wicked, but they are making a self-conscious choice now to begin to slowly get in the stream of wickedness, to begin to identify with the wicked, to begin to sympathize with wicked counsel, with wicked worldview uh, um, uh, philosophies or points of views. This is the path of temptation that James warns us about in James chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. Turn there with me. Go to James chapter 1, verse 13. I only bring you to this point because I think it's sanctifying for us to remember that for us, it is not an option to toy around and play around with sin. Um, uh, let a man take heed lest he fall because... Uh, Scripture tells us that, in a sense, sin sort of follows a certain course. Uh, It's almost like it has a a particular trajectory. And if you get in its path, you could be swept along by it, right? Look at what it says here. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. See, the, the person in the psalm has put him, his or herself in the path of this. It says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Isn't it any wonder that James ends the section in verse 16? Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. 
In other words, don't be deceived of the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be deceived of the influence and the power that the wicked can have upon you. And Paul tells the Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals. You should not, you cannot, and you ought not stand in the path, in the direction, in the course of the wicked. You are not, your flesh is not strong enough to withstand. Put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to obey its lust. Don't trust the flesh. Don't listen to the flesh. You know what you do with the flesh? According to Colossians chapter 1, or excuse me, uh, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, you mutilate the flesh. You, you, you crucify the flesh. You put the flesh to death. You kill the flesh. That's what he says. And therefore, you and I would do well not to go along with the flow You see, what's going on here in Psalms is that the wicked are being accused of living reckless, lawless lives. But you and I, we are not to be spiritually irresponsible. Uh, There is nothing in the Word of God that tells us we just kind of go with the flow. Uh, Everything in Scripture is pointing us in the opposite direction. I did a study on this, and I won't give you all the verses, but in Scripture we are constantly, constantly, constantly called to be sober, to be serious, to be vigilant, to be aware, to be on alert, to be awake, not to be asleep. Is that how you live your life? A lot of Christians live their life in cruise control. They're just going by and sort of passively taking in influences with no spiritual vigilance whatsoever, with no intentional guards that they set up for themselves to protect themselves, to protect their houses, to protect their marriage, to protect their family, to protect their children. I was talking with someone the other day, and we're talking about my daughter, and I said, my number one calling is to guard the purity of my daughter. And I will, <laughs> I will guard the purity of my daughter. And, um, and that's the way that we should be about our soul. And we don't enter into the stream with the wicked because our soul is being subjected to wicked things that have the power to bring spiritual ruin into our lives. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 13 kind of sums it all. If I can pick one verse, this would be a good one. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that telling you? Fix your mind, fix your hope on the grace. That's what he says. Fix your hope. And by doing that, what he's saying is this. Adopt an eternal perspective and don't move from there. Be eternally minded, be eschatologically minded, if you would. Understand who you are on, 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 on two days. Today and the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of yourself from an eternal perspective. This world is highly skilled at getting us to forget eternity. Everything is now. Everything is here. Everything is temporal. Everything is immediate. Everything is satisfy the impulse now. Get everything that you think will make you happy in this life right now before it runs out. 
Hurry up. Do it quickly. Get the latest gadget. Get the latest iPhone. Get the latest app. Get the latest technology. Get the latest trinket. Adopt the latest fashion. Get the latest car. You know, um, everything that's coming out. And maybe before we're all dead, it's going to be get the latest robot to run your life. I mean, this, where our society is going is frightening. Let me leave it at that before we divulge into an entire discussion on technological singularity, which we do not have time for. But it is getting, it is getting scary out there because it is so seductive. Have you ever sat in a Tesla car? I have. It feels good in there. <laughs> You've got a big screen television for a dash. And it just looks so nice. It smells so good. New car smell. I, I tell you, that's, somebody needs to write a book on the dangers of new car smell. <laughs> Lest we become materialist. But you know what I mean. There's a progression here. You noticing it? Of course, it's obvious, right? First, you walk. And then, you stand. And then the last step or the last uh, step on the process of this progression, or really this digression, is that you sit. So what's the last point? Not rocket science. The righteous do not sit with the wicked. Now we've gone from a direction to a decision to a disposition. Because where you have come, if you have not put an end to the first point of temptation and walking in the counsel of the wicked, is that you have become wicked. You have taken a seat with the scoffer. This is what's amazing about this. The, the, the Hebrew word scoffer, lates. Uh, involves the concept of interpretation. It's used that way in Genesis. Genesis chapter 42, verse 23. It uses the, the concept of interpreting dreams. I think that's what the context is there. But, but the idea of having to either interpret or to translate. What is it saying here then? That a scoffer is somebody that uses their mental faculties, their powers of discernment, in order to turn those powers of discernment and mock God. You're using your mind not to love the Lord your God. Look at this. Where we have come in the Psalter is if we do not stop at walking, where we come to is sitting with the scoffer. And what that means is a complete reversal of the covenant obligation that a Jew would have in that day, which would be to what? To worship the Lord your God with all your mind. And now you're using your mind to scoff at God. It's amazing in ministry how many times I have sat with people that on the basis of stupid decisions, they've become and they've ended up in places they never thought they were going to be in. See, we do not and we cannot overlook the simple fact that if we do not turn away from listening to the wicked and willfully begin to be influenced by the wicked, that we will become wicked and we will do wicked things. It's that simple. Um, As I was studying for this, I thought, you know, this is so basic. Why am I trying to make it more difficult? (laughs) It really is simple, isn't it? But these simple things we overlook. 
Uh, let me tell you something else about the scoffer. In the Bible, the scoffer is a dreadful place to be. I don't know what it's, what's in your mind in terms of when somebody mentions a scoffer or a mocker, what comes to your mind, maybe something absurd or, or, or silly or something rude or something like that. But in biblical parlance, to be a scoffer, according to Derek Kidner, he would say, you are the furthest from repentance. In other words, to scoff means that you are willfully, not ignorantly or gullibly doing it, but you are willfully now turning on God. In other words, it is a high-handed sin. It is a high-handed rejection of God's law. Is it any wonder that in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 9, the scoffer is an abomination to men? Why? Because the scoffer solicits other men to scoff and to reject God. In a sense, the scoffer is soliciting others to commit high crimes against heaven and bring down the curse of God on those who dwell on the earth. And therefore, those who scoff at God are an abomination. Notice notice what it says. To men. We should consider somebody who is scoffing at God and scoffing at His people to be an abomination on the culture. It is a sad commentary indeed. You know, the reality is, of course, God is not threatened by that. Proverbs 3.34, God scoffs at scoffers. It's no different than what we're going to read in Psalm chapter 2. He laughs at the raging nations that stand against God's anointed. Derek Kidner says this, There are three complete phrases here, three aspects, indeed three degrees of departure from God. By portraying conformity to this world at three different levels, accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes for the scoffer. If not the most scandalous of sinner, the scoffer is the farthest from repentance. Okay, well, of course, we believe in the grace of God, but appreciate what's being said in the worldview of the psalmist, that a person who has brought himself or herself to the place of scoffing God is an abomination. Wow. If we go back to the beginning, remember that he said, we are blessed if we don't do these things. How blessed is the man. And you know what's so beautiful about this is that Hebrew word there, how blessed, how blessed is the man, is actually in the plural. And if you were to translate it happiness, you would translate it something like how happinesses of the man, which wouldn't make any sense in English, so we don't do it that way. So we render it as a singular, but it's an abstract plural. That's interesting because what it's trying to point out to us is the manifold blessings that God will shower us with if we obey His Word. The many blessings. And what are those blessings? Well, just to mention a few. The blessing of having communion with God. The blessing of sleeping with a clear conscience at night. The blessing knowing that, you know, as the Bible says, you know, your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. The blessing of, 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 of avoiding company that will corrupt your morals. The blessing of protecting your marriage. The blessing of protecting your family. The blessing of protecting your soul. 
blessing after blessing after blessing if we will obey. In a sense, it's as if every believer is a little Israel. And God is telling us, if you obey, you will live on a practical level, not on a salvific level, not you will earn salvation. But if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. And you will be cursed. And if you just look at the Look at the curses in Israel, Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 29, curse after curse after curse. You know what happens at the end of those chapters. You look back and what God has basically said is every aspect of your life will be cursed. Cursed in the marriage, cursed in the home, cursed in the womb, cursed in the fields, your, your produce, your employment, everything, economically, spiritually, physically, medicinally, in every way you can be cursed through disobedience. Praise God for Jesus Christ who gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What the psalmist is calling us to do is don't move from that place of blessing. Commune with Him instead of compromising with Him. Let's close by considering how do we connect all this to Christ? How do we connect Psalm 1 to Christ? I disagree with some who would say that there really is no connection to Christ. I say, no, I think there is. There's plenty of connections to Christ. For example, let me give you one, let me give you three quick ones. Number one, Jesus himself uses the formula of the blessed man. You know where? The Beatitudes. It's Jesus who says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn, etc., etc. What Jesus is doing is he's taking this blessedness, the blessedness of the righteous man, and he's taking it to its ultimate kingdom level. You see, the world will tell us the complete opposite. The wicked in their counsel, what they would say is, you are a good person. But Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the difference? The world and its philosophy will tell you you are basically good. Uh, Like Islam, you are born... This is remarkable. As you were talking, Rami, I realized Islam is Pelagian. (laughs) You are of tabula rasa. You are born pure. Really? But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he means by that is, it's not until you acknowledge your bankruptcy. It's not until you acknowledge that you are miserable and sinful in the eyes of an all-holy, powerful God that you will be blessed. But you begin talking about man's bankrupt nature, and this world will protest that. They will say, oh, come on. This person's a good person. What are you talking about? No. Jesus said, you want to be blessed? Acknowledge your poverty before God. The wicked will tell us, avoid sorrow at all costs. And yet Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, blessed are those that see the world as it is. They see the pain all around. They don't try to avoid it. The wicked would say, glut yourself on the world's pleasures. And Jesus would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're going to be hedonistic, be a Christian hedonist. In other words... The wicked would say, look out for yourself. Jesus would say, blessed are the merciful. And on and on and on, Jesus does not obey the counsel of the ungodly, but gives us the complete opposite. The other thing is this. Jesus himself is the center of all spiritual blessing. He is the one. 
He is, the, he, he is the one in whom are found all of the riches of God. And I'll give you one last one. Jesus is the prototypical blessed man. He is the ultimate righteous man. He is the ultimate man who was blessed by God because he ultimately obeyed God. After all, it was Jesus who said, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And in this text, what that means is that Jesus, as the prototypical blessed man, is the one who remained untainted from the world. And I'll close with a scripture out of the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners, and exalted into the heavens. You see, it's on the basis of Jesus' moral purity, His obedience, perfect obedience, to the law of God, to the Word of God, that we have redemption. Redemption is not a result of our obedience, but it is a result of obedience. It's the result of the obedience of God's Son. We have so much work to do in the Psalter. I hope that this would be a meaningful introduction for you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we consider the wisdom of the Psalms, that we would truly become wise. And that we would recognize that what you desire from us is pure and undefiled religion. And sometimes it is difficult and we lose sight of the, the, the simple words of James. That what that means is to keep yourself untainted from the world. And so God really truly birth in us a love and a desire for holiness. That's what it boils down to. A love and a desire for holiness that that reveals that we have a transformed heart. A heart that does not walk with the wicked, does not stand with the wicked, and does not sit with the wicked because you hate all those who do wicked deeds. Oh God, remind us of how blessed we are through Jesus Christ because we are reminded that we were wicked We're reminded of our own sin and our own misery. And we know, oh God, that apart from your grace, there we all go. In the path of the wicked. Scoffing like the wicked. And yet only by your sheer sovereign grace have you turned these wicked hearts so that we would love righteousness and hate evil. Continue to grow us in that same direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.